is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A new EPA enforcement order outlining conditions for the shutdown of the Red Hill fuel facility is now issued. The Navy has signed on to the draft order triggered by fuel getting into the drinking water of some 93,000 homes on the military's drinking water system. The draft order still needs public input before it's finalized. We talked to Amy Miller, director of the EPA's Enforcement and Compliance Branch, about deficiencies, which include lack of maintenance, safety training, insufficient number of trained operators, as well as problems with chemical storage. Here's Miller. This is born out of both the event last year, along with follow-up investigations that EPA did. We conducted multimedia inspections under various statutes, and as a result of those investigations and the ongoing effort that the Navy has been doing and their decision to defuel, based on those inspections and the work, we negotiated a, a an administrative order on consent that really covers a lot of work that we think will protect groundwater and the drinking water system at the base. This agreement has a scope of work that will give EPA oversight of the Navy's defueling and closure of the Red Hill facility, but it will also give us oversight over their drinking water system and really put in place some measures to ensure that the Navy is taking steps to make the drinking water system resilient and that they're attuned to what's happening within the system. When you did do the inspections of the facility, I saw a kind of a laundry list. of. Can you go down that list and talk about what you found? We conducted an inspection under our drinking water program to see what was the status of the drinking water system. Um, You know, obviously the system was contaminated and we wanted to understand, you know, what steps the Navy was taking to protect the source water, but also just what health the, the whole system was in. So we did find problems with the infrastructure of the system. And through this agreement, the Navy will be required to have an asset management plan and a source water protection plan. It also incorporates in the long-term monitoring that they are doing, the flushing and long-term monitoring that is being done with an agreement with the Department of Health. But this agreement makes it legally enforceable. So that's one inspection. The other part is we did look at the Red Hill facility and noticed that there were a lot of deficiencies with the system and also the the Navy's emergency response plan, which we call a facility response plan. And they had not been notifying us of those. And so we are working with them on improving the facility response plan as well as their notification of spills. And then as they go about the process of defueling and closing, we want to make sure that they are taking steps to fix things and and ensure that there aren't future spills. We have just had that recent discharge of uh, the firefighting foam concentrate. Does this order apply to that? You know, I want to assure everyone that we are looking into it. A spill like that is of concern. And we are in close coordination with Department of Health as we investigate this. We were concerned about the AFF, the fire suppression system, and the state of it, and were concerned that a lot of repairs needed to be done. And we are looking forward to seeing the results of the Navy's review of the incident. You know, you talk about the failure to report to your agency in a timely manner, and I I know I think one of the media outlets here did a story about how there may have been another release of foam uh, when a pump station was flooded recently. I don't know if you were notified in that case. I had just recently learned about those spills that happened back in 2020. And again, you know, th- th- this kind of goes to one of the findings in our inspection report about their facility response plan and notifying 
regulators, which we think the Navy has taken steps. So this most recent spell, they did notify us along with the Department of Health, and they have taken steps to immediately respond. So I do think that some of the work that has been done is making a difference. Are you aware of any other spills regarding the foam elsewhere on the facility that may not be in the drinking water per se, but maybe making its way down through the basalt toward the aquifer? With this recent spill, it has concerned us and we're, we're going to do an extensive look and investigation. So hopefully in the future, I can let you know what the outcome is. That was the EPA's Enforcement and Compliance Administrator, Amy Miller, talking to us from San Francisco. The public hearings on that draft order are set for January 16th. Sea level rise and flooding potentially causing dangerous chemicals to be released into our oceans. That's the subject of our reality check today with Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henre. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so your story came out of a, a, a briefing that was held in the House. That's right. This was a briefing that was held yesterday with the House Energy and Environmental Protection uh, Committee. And um, this was it was delivered by Dr. Diana Felton. She's the state toxicologist. Also on hand was Elizabeth Kiefer, who is um, a professor at the John A. Byrne School of Medicine. And this was a briefing on climate change as a public health issue. I mean, we obviously look at it very much so as the environmental crisis that it is. But this briefing really examined all the uh, public health effects that, that inevitably stem from those environmental changes, the adverse effects like, uh, you know, from increased uh, and extended heat waves or the aftermath of hurricanes, uh, loss of food supplies and, you know, existing health issues that will only get worse in these adverse conditions. So it was as I think I believe it was Dr. Felton who described it as a very, quote, dark topic. It was a, you know, one of those real um, kind of a, a downer of a, of a meeting, frankly. You know, you even talk about the mental health effects associated with climate change. But in any case, the one of the, the interesting things that, that popped out of this overview was the fact that there are apparently 800 sites uh, across Hawaii. And these are sites that are, um, they're basically monitored by the Department of Health and its Hazard Evaluation and Energy Response Office. And these are sites that have been contaminated with any sort of chemicals, be that uh, lead paints, uh, be it uh, more complex industrial chemicals or oil spills, things of that nature from a lot of uh, historical industrial use. And a lot of these tend to be around military uh, in installations and, and industrial areas, you know, very heavy in industry and the like. Um, and what they were saying was that sea level rise, right now the, the chemicals are there, they're accounted for, and they're, they're contained. They're, they're stable, basically. Uh, but with sea level rise, you can expect uh, increased flooding and coastal erosion and inundation of these sites where these chemicals would be released, they would be spread, they would be mixed, and it would just cause a whole other host of potential health risks. Well, I should let our listeners know that your article has a um, uh, an image of, I guess, these 800 sites on a map, and it, it's a little disconcerting, you know, because I'm thinking, gosh, what does that mean if that stuff ends up in the water, you know, all the marine life, you know, the people who swim in the water? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a, a little nerve-wracking. Yeah, it's pretty disconcerting. And that, that's an image that I took from a map. If you go in the article, you can click on that map and you can really explore where the, a lot of these sites are located. Uh, it's a Department of Health site. And they basically determine the 800 sites by taking this map and laying on top of it, you know, the um, the sea level rise uh, sites, you know, the projections from the state and NOAA flood maps. And you basically put all, stack all of those maps on top of each other and you realize that we are going to have a real problem in the coming decades. Right. And this is just chemicals. This isn't like the cesspools that we've got on the coastline. 
that's a that's a pretty key point that came up in the briefing. There, are, this does not include the cesspool cesspools, and there are about ninety thousand cesspools in the state of Hawaii. In addition to these these sites that they're talking about, and yeah, that's a whole other issue. But it just shows how much heavy lifting we have in front of us. Right. So we've got to start looking uh, at how we're going to deal with that. But thank you so much, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. Happy holidays. All right. You too. We have been talking to reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read that full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Highway Inn Hawaiian Food, celebrating 75 years. Located in Kaka'ako, Waipahu, and Bishop Museum, also shipping package dishes to the continental U.S. Group reservations at myhighwayinn.com. I'm Marco Werman. The world is full of stories. Israel's never before been in a situation remotely like this. So they put their hopes in China. We have a massive aging population here in Europe. When you arrived in Ghana, didn't you tell yourself, this is where I should be? It's one hour each day when you get a global perspective. Join us on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. World War II brought martial law to Hawaii and hardship to many Japanese Americans. Many were put in concentration camps on the continental United States because of their ethnicity. Many families voluntarily left Hawaii to join their loved ones at those camps. And that experience not only upended lives, it also changed them. As part of our continuing series with the University of Hawaii's Ethnic Studies Center for Oral History, We'd like to share the voices of some of those affected by those experiences. Joining us now is Kelly Nakamura. She's Associate Professor of History in the Arts and Humanities Department at Kapi'olani Community College. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. Well, let's just jump into this. Let's start by listening to an introduction by Ethnic Studies Professor Tai Kavika Tengen about the voices that we'll hear from. Grace Sugita Hawley's family left Hawaii to be reunited with her father, who had first been incarcerated at Sand Island before being relocated to Jerome, Arkansas, and finally to Heart Mountain Concentration Camp in Wyoming. After the war, her family settled in St. Paul, Minnesota. They encountered Japanese-American soldiers who trained as translators and interpreters at nearby Fort Snelling, which housed the Military Intelligence Service Language School from 1944 through 1946. They knew the war was ending, but they were closing the camps before the war ended. And they were trying to get people resettled in the Midwestern states. We went to St. Paul because we had to settle down somewhere. We couldn't go home. My father didn't get approval to go home, and he had to wait for Washington, D.C. to give approval. So uh, his friend who lived in Minneapolis had a restaurant there. He said, why don't you go to St. Paul and open a restaurant? So he said, okay. It turned out that there was this Japanese family selling a restaurant. So that's the one he was buying. This uh, friend put us up, you know, he was so nice of me. When we got there, we stayed in Minneapolis and until we were ready to move into St. Paul. And then we had to stay in a hostel. So that's what they did in those days. When they were getting people to resettle outside, they put up hostels. They did quite well at the restaurant because there were the Fort Snelling there outside of St. Paul, Minneapolis. And they would come in a bus. And the guys would come out, and they just want to eat Japanese food. All the Nisei soldiers. Mm -hmm. So it was a good way to kill some time, you know, until we could go back. Other former inmates would also encounter Japanese-American soldiers during their return to the islands. Bert Nakano and his family had been incarcerated at the Jerome concentration camp. His story highlights the paradox of incarcerating Japanese-Americans for their perceived threat to national security during the war, while utilizing Japanese-American soldiers who were part of the most decorated American military units in history. 
When we went back to Hawaii, the government sent us back on a troop ship. And can you imagine we going back with the heroes of World War II, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, on the boat, going back to the island, together with us who were in concentration camp in the United States. I mean, this is irony. You can't imagine. And the 442 boys used to ask us, what are you guys uh, were doing in the mainland? We were in concentration camp. What? They put you there for what you know yeah. there was surprise and when we hit Honolulu we can hear the band going and all the people the dignitaries out there waiting for the 442 returning vets mm -hmm. so they told us you guys stay in the hole and then after the 442 disembarked they said now you can come up and when we came up there was nobody on the dock except mm -hmm. our relatives Anise born in Heioahu Toshio Moritsugu grew up in a village called Fish Camp. After Japan bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, his father was picked up and detained by the FBI at the Sand Island internment camp. He reflects upon the impact of the war on his family. The Territory Department of Social Service realized that we could not make a living with a whole family, you know, eight children and my mother. So quite often, you know, a worker came over and that asked that whether we needed help. And my mother was really strong. She felt embarrassed even getting a penny from the territory. So she says she can manage. What was your reaction when the war ended? I thought to myself, I'm glad that it's over now. The whole family can get together. And then as to the injustice done on our family, there was one reservation I had was the health of my father. My father was a very energetic, healthy person. I don't recall a single day when he was sick. And when he returned, I sensed that he was not that healthy. He was worried, he was reserved, and that he did not have the energy that I had seen him before. His health declined. He had to get into a hospital, lost conscious, and then passed away. And that was the thing that I had no answer for it. Was it his interment that did it? Because he died in 1951 at the age of 62, which I thought was rather young for an energetic person. Upon their return to Hawaii, many former inmates and their families struggled to fit in after years on the mainland. Jun Hoshida's family had spent the war with her father in Jerome and Gila River concentration camps in Arkansas and Arizona. She remembers the difficulties after coming back home. First thing I wanted was chazuke and koko is what we say. You know, takwang and, and chazuke. So I ate that. It was so good, but my stomach wasn't big enough for it and it wasn't ready for it. So I ran out of the kitchen over there to their backside and vomited everything up. Oh, I felt so bad. I was horrified. I spoke good English. My cousins made fun of me. They would call me upstairs to their living quarters and say, go say something, go say something. So I'd say, what do you want me to say? And then they'd start laughing. You see, and um, my sister thinks that they were amused just because I spoke like a kotong, but they were making fun of me. I figured they were making fun of me because, you know, I'm nine years old. Gosh, you know, listening to those stories being recounted, it just touches your heart. I mean, the changes, not just mentally, but physically. What are you struck by? I'm really kind of impacted by the very personal, how war, in fact, impacted these individuals, whether they be family members, children, or the internees themselves, or even, of course, people who were viscerally watching their kind of experiences. So. I really love June Hoshida's very kind of personal account of how her language and how the way she spoke and what she ate really was transformed within a matter of approximately about four years or so since you know she was sent away and then actually came back. That was a very pointed comment that her relatives made where they said, you know, you spoke like a katonk. You spoke like someone who clearly is not from Hawaii. And your diet was in fact fundamentally changed from living in these incarceration centers. Yeah, and it's hurtful. You know, you feel the sting when she says she's nine years old and she feels they're making fun of her. And then you feel for the gentleman who came back with the veterans on the ship. Oh, that just, you know, made me tear up. 
it really kind of highlights the kind of the irony of incarceration, where on one hand, you really kind of celebrate a very specific aspect of Japanese American history, a very celebrated, of course, triumphalist discourse regarding Nisei veterans, and of course, their invaluable contributions in the 442, 100th, and military intelligence service. But on the same token, you also hear stories from many of these veterans who were these sons who had family members, fathers incarcerated, and they would actually go up and visit them in these incarceration centers on the mainland. So he did mention that they were, um, I think the other um, woman and individual, she was talking about how they were right next to Fort Snelling, which was a military intelligence service language training center. And it was kind of this irony where you had an incarceration center um, very close to essentially a military training center where they had Hawaii people, um, Hawaii populations there um, in very close proximity, but in very different contexts. So it really kind of highlights the injustices of war, um, the ironies and the kind of divergent experiences of very different groups within the Japanese American population not just on the mainland, but here in Hawaii. And you worked on a project where you interviewed many of these internees. That's absolutely correct. So a number of years ago, I was very fortunate to take part in this project hosted by Densho, which is an organization that really kind of focused on capturing the experiences of Japanese Americans during World War II, whether they be the family members or the inmates themselves. And so I was very fortunate to be able to interview a number of individuals here in Hawaii, both men and women, the inmates themselves, as well as, of course, children of these inmates. And I don't know, you know, what your stories, I don't know what your family stories may be, and, you know, at this point in time, uh, is there anything you can share with our listeners, you know, about... Well, we had a we had a very interesting experience, um, and maybe, of course, maybe a not a very uncommon experience. So we did have family members who served in the U.S. military. We have a number of family members, including, of course, my grandfather, who was, in fact, buried up at Punchbowl because of, of course, their contributions during World War II. We also had my paternal grandmother's side. We, in fact, and still keep in contact with them, they were in Hiroshima, Japan. And so... You know, on one side, we had family members fighting for the U.S. military. And on the other side, we actually had family members who participated on behalf of the Japanese army. So, for example, my grandmother's sister married a Japanese uh, soldier who was sent off to somewhere in Southeast Asia. We never heard from him ever again after the war. And in fact, a daughter would be born, so my grandmother's niece. And we actually jokingly called her a war baby that she was born during the war, she never really knew her father, but she was clearly a product of these global events. And so, of course, being in Hiroshima, Japan, my grandmother's sister, she actually died relatively young, so we didn't know if it was the effects of radiation or not. Um, they themselves were not directly impacted by the bombing of Hiroshima. They weren't in Hiroshima itself, but they were one of the outlying provinces. But still today, there's a lot of suspicion or concern about the impact of radiation on the residents of Hiroshima. So um, it's something that, you know, it's part of our family history where we see this kind of divergent fate um, on both sides of the Pacific, to be perfectly honest, where, again, we have two kind of very different military narratives that were created. And you had talked about uh, how people change their names, you know, over time. So, you know, there's actually been a number of, you know, wonderful articles in uh, the Hawaii Hochi, now the Hawaii Herald, that really kind of talk about this, how during this time period, especially Hawaii Japanese here, um, would change their name to very American names, like Betty, you know, those very traditional American 1950s names, like June. For example, uh, my grandparents, my great-grandfather became known as Harry, my other grandfather became known as Sonny, and, you know, my grandmother, who was in fact born on Young Street, but then went back to Japan during her childhood and later was sent back here to Hawaii. Her first language was, in fact, Japanese, and she was more fluent in Japanese. And, you know, we like to joke or ask, we would ask my grandmother, why would you name your two children after New York Yankee baseball players when she couldn't even pronounce their names, which would be Wesley and Vernon? And, of course, she had a very distinct Japanese accent, and she couldn't even pronounce her children's names properly, but I think it was kind of a reflection of this impetus to really Americanize and really kind of show 
how American you were. So we do know a lot of families, and I think this is very common that from about the second and third generation on, many people did not go to Japanese language schools. Many people stopped speaking, writing Japanese. And we know what an advantage it is right now to actually speak and write a different language. Many of the schools here really do encourage that, that children should speak other languages and kind of learn different cultures. But back in the 1940s, 1950s, that really was something that you didn't do. Yeah, but it's powerful to hear these voices from the past reminding us of a time that changed us all Absolutely. and continues to, to change our lives as, as, uh, as things go on. But we thank you very much for being a, a part of this. Mahalo to the Densho uh, Digital Repository for providing the interviews. Uh, this oral history project is supported by the SHARP Initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. And thank you, Kelly Nakamura, for joining us again today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. idea of there's always politicking and backstabbing in politics, people trying to get their own. There's this common saying in Peru, roba pero hace obra. O sea, he robs, but he gets stuff done. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. HPR is celebrating the season with special programming on HPR 1 and HPR 2. See the full lineup at hawaiipublicradio.org slash holiday. Sponsored by Nohea Gallery as a gift to the community. like something you'd see in National Geographic or on Animal Planet. Uh, There's social media posts about a shark attacking an access deer. It was in the water fronting the pond at Menehune Shores in Kihei, Maui. How exactly would that happen? And why would deer be so close to the shore or in the ocean at all? It sounded a little questionable, so we reached out to the State Department of Land and Natural Resources who actually retrieved that deer carcass from the water. The Conversations Brussels Subiano talked to Jeff Bagshaw, the Communications and Outreach Specialist for the state's Division of Forestry and Wildlife on Maui, about that situation. What can you tell me about what DLNR knows about what happened? As far as we know, there was an access deer in the water. The carcass was retrieved by Division of the Law Enforcement Officer Still Care to prevent any hazards. Whether or not there was a shark there that was attacking, I don't know. We don't know. What And deer going into the ocean is not actually too uncommon. They can get spooked and run into the ocean. And then, just like people, they can misjudge waves and or their abilities to swim and get into trouble. I will note that you know, sharks get blamed for things, but they are the recyclers. They're there to, to clean up and so often, it's not that they are instigating something, but they may notice something or hear unusual sounds and come to check it out. That's their job. And so what DLNR knows for sure is that there was a deer carcass in the water, and it looks like it might have been fed on by sharks. But whether or not there was a deer that was actually attacked by a shark, that's unknown, right? That is unknown. Okay. Um, my information was that there were no marks on the carcass. Okay, okay. So the so there were no shark teeth or bites or anything taken out of the carcass. Right. Okay. Who saw what species of shark is another important question, and where is just hearsay, Okay. so far as I know. And as far as the deer going down to the shoreline, I know the overpopulation of access deer herds on Maui is something that DLNR is, is working to get under control. And you said earlier that deer going down to the shoreline is not that uncommon. When we think about deer, that's not something that comes to mind. But why would deer go down to the shoreline? Well, they're probably in proximity to where the plants are good. If people are living close to the ocean and, you know, watering gardens and keeping things very nice for the property, deer are going to be attracted to that. We humans have 
put a lot by the ocean, and so we're going to attract those kind of animals because we've got a lot of green space and a lot of vegetation that we maintain that's yummy to a deer. So they're going to be attracted to that. They're going to come down to the ocean, and they get spooked. There are lots of stories. This is not the first time a deer has gone into the ocean, and it won't be the last. There's even stories of the animals going into buildings, generally, again, because they've been spooked or approached by dogs or people. You know, they just try to find an escape route, and sometimes it's into the foyer of the building or into the ocean. Right. They're very skittish animals, and and we know that the overpopulation is kind of pushing them into areas that they don't normally go to. What, if anything, is DLNR doing to help control or cull the, the overpopulation? Well, this is a joint effort, and that should be stressed because we're responsible for about 20% of the land on Maui, only about 20%. And the deer are actually mostly on private areas, on private lands in municipal areas. So we can only do so much. It's really a team effort by the private landowners, the county, as well as the state. So there are multiple people who are trying to respond to it. I would take any opportunity to, re- to encourage hunters to not hunt the bucks, to hunt the does and the fawns even, because in their natural habitat, they have nine, nine different types of predators, even boa constrictors. Here in Hawaii, there are no natural predators, and over 90% of the fawns make it to breeding age, which is not natural. So overpopulation is something we'll always have to be working on. But it's, it's a joint effort. As far as what we can do, we've fenced off areas where we're trying to protect critical watersheds, we are, we assist landowners, but usually uh, larger landowners with fence design and or contracting, but it's not within our budget to, to fence all the private landowners. So large private landowners, it's their kuleana to fence their lands and control the population within their boundaries. If we can do that, we can fight, I liken it to a, a fire in an apartment building, you know, if there's a an apartment building where all the windows are open and there are no hallway doors, we can't control the fire. But fences help us control this this kind of a fire, this kind of overpopulation, because we can kind of divide and control the herd. That's what we've been hearing, too, that it, it is a joint effort between a lot of different community groups, agencies, to, to try and help control the, the overpopulation there. If you're a licensed registered hunter, you can hunt deer any time of year on private land with permission from the landowner. There's no tags, no seasons. You just can only do it during daylight hours, of course, for safety reasons. But there's virtually no restrictions on, you know, and on a hunting license is $20. So get out there and hunt. <laughs> it's the opposite of taking only what you need works for everything else except deer take more than what you need. We're not going to run out of deer. In cases like this, where DLNR is called out to dispose of a carcass, what gets done with those carcasses? And, and what was done with this specific deer carcass? I'm not sure what was done with this specific one. If it's on state land, we just try to find a natural place for it, bury it, and use some lime to to let it decompose naturally, because the nutrients that created the animal can go back to that landscape. What happens in each individual case on private land, I'm not sure of it. It varies quite a bit. When there was the big die-off on Molokai, some of our, our, our staff assisted private landowners with bulldozing to dig trenches to bury some of the carcasses for sanitation and health reasons. So it just depends on each case. If people have them in their yard, unfortunately their responsibility and various agencies try to respond. But if it's on the road, it falls to the state and the county uh, road folks. We only try to assist if it's a live animal in certain places. I would like to take the opportunity to remind people that these animals are not petting zoo quality animals. They are not tame. Even a doe or a fawn can injure someone. They can run 40 miles an hour. They have very strong leg muscles and a kick can be very painful and even from a young fawn. So people should not try to approach the animals or assist them. They're just not, they're not gentle animals. They are designed to, 
they have evolved to fight off predators, and we're big animals to them. So even if it's just a fawn or a doe, don't try to approach them. And also, this is a great opportunity to remind people <laughs> with this storm, we've got a lot of brown water in, in the ocean, and that does attract sharks, just the scent of brown water. They've learned that, you know, animals, whether it's rats, mongooses, or, or otherwise, will come down with the brown water into the ocean. Again, they're out there to do their job, which is clean up. So brown water, stay out. That's great advice. I really appreciate your time, Jeff. Thanks for talking with me. All right. You're welcome, Russell. That was DLNR's Jeff Bagshaw talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about access deer overpopulation and the recent reports of a shark attacking a deer along the Kihei shoreline on Maui. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. The majority of Hawaii's endemic birds are in trouble. Many are extinct or believed to be extinct, and several others are critically endangered. Uh, those are the findings of a recently released national report. HPR's Jaina Omai joins us with more. Good morning. Hi, Catherine, and thank you for having me to talk about this really important issue here in Hawaii and, of course, across the country. As many of us know, this really isn't a new issue, right? We know that for many years now, our native birds have been suffering. They're struggling. And so this State of the Birds 2022 report really kind of highlights that struggle and kind of puts it more, continues to put it in the forefront of the public's minds, right? So basically, the report says that Almost half of Hawaii's 73 endemic birds are either extinct or they're believed to be extinct by scientists. And additionally, 33% are either endangered or threatened, which means they're listed federally. Um, they're species that really need our help, the government and um, private groups that really need our help to continue to survive here in Hawaii. And so a little bit about this national report, it's compiled by the U.S. North American Bird Conservation Initiative. And so it's this national coalition of about 30 government agencies and private groups, right? And their goal is to really ensure kind of the long-term health of native, native birds in Hawaii and of course across the country. And so this report is interesting. It, um, again, it's a national report, but there was a section carved out for Hawaiian birds, which kind of signals that, you know, it's an important issue here um, as well as nationally. Yeah, we often hear that we're the endangered capital of the world. <laughs> yes, we hear that phrase a lot. And this, this report and so many other reports and findings locally and nationally really kind of touch on that as well. Um, so to kind of localize this story, I talked to some people here in Hawaii about the findings and also kind of their take on just the importance of our endemic species in Hawaii. And so one of them is Ula Leah Woodside. She's the executive director of the Nature Conservancy's Hawaii and Palmyra chapter. And she's also a kumuhula, right? So she kind of comes from the cultural, the environmental worlds, and she kind of brings them both together and kind of shows how they're really related related and interweaving each other. So one of the things when I asked her, like, can you talk about the importance of our native birds? And she went all the way back and referenced the Kumulipo, which is the um, Hawaiian creation chant as one of the earliest accounts that shows this interdependence and the cultural and environmental significance of our native birds. And so our culture of this place captures the spirit of, of that early population of these islands. So she says the Nature Conservancy here in Hawaii, they do things like they partner with the Kauai and Maui Forest Bird Recovery Projects, as well as the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, which actually has some captive breeding facilities in the islands. So the Conservancy really works with these community groups to kind of see, bolster their, um, what they're already doing and to see if, how they can help our native birds. Um, you know, with upcoming projects of theirs as well as others in conservation, uh, Ulilia told me that she is optimistic and really hoping for the best for our native birds. What we do know is that if we put in the effort, if we make some changes, 
this cause doesn't need to be lost. When I was growing up, our state bird, the nene, was called the, the most, uh, the rarest goose in the world. And it was something that you didn't see everywhere. But Hawaii made a concerted effort. And now we're seeing that the nene is able to thrive. Yeah, it's really made a comeback. It really has. Um, and as many people know, in 2000, because of that effort by the community and government officials, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service actually downlisted the nene from endangered to threatened, which means that it's on the road to recovery. And um, it's really kind of come back from the brink of extinction. I, and I know here on Oahu, like we don't see the nene. Um, it's not something we grew up with, like Ulalia mentioned, but I know when I go to the neighbor islands, like I just went to Maui and visited Haleakala, I saw so many nene and it's, it's really cool. You know, it's something that we don't, I guess it's not common yet for some of us, but they're coming back, their populations are increasing. And so kind of related to that, another person I talked to was Natalie Gates. She's Haleakala National Park's superintendent. And so she also spoke, um, like Ulalia, about the cultural and environmental importance of these birds and how she sees that in her work every day. Now, in terms of the Hawaiian culture, we know that uh, the natural and the physical world are very close to the spiritual world. So we have uh, done significant outreach with the Native Hawaiian community. We know how important these native birds are. We know how island specific the feelings are for our native birds. So um, Haleakala is part of this multi-agency coalition to try to save as many birds as possible. And they're going to be using this method to try to eliminate avian malaria, which is particularly lethal for native birds, right? And so they're going to kind of trying to release these male mosquitoes that are bred with this kind of bacteria that basically makes the mosquito eggs sterile. So they're hoping less mosquitoes, less avian malaria, hopefully the birds will survive and thrive. Yeah, fascinating story. But uh, thank you for the snapshot on our uh, native birds. But thank you, Jana. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking with Jana Omaya. You can uh, check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, jewelry, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. All proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions open during museum hours. The film Love Actually has been a holiday staple for nearly 20 years. What makes it so special? It's the magic, right? There could be more to life mm. and you can get that from like Christmas magic. You can also get it from dark magic, too. That's what I like. <laughs> the legacy of Love Actually and the power of holiday movie magic. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hemic, a mutual insurance company helping care for Hawaii's businesses and workers for more than 20 years. Learn more at hemic.com. Seaweed stories take the spotlight this week. Today you'll hear about an effort to begin surveying the Limu patches of Kaho'olawe. University of Hawaii Ethnic Studies professor and historian Debiana McGregor wrote a grant for this community project. The group went out for the first time this past summer. They had planned a visit to the island earlier this month, but bad weather canceled the trip. Uh, we connected with one of the team members. Noelani Puniba is a ecologist and an assistant professor at the UH uh, Kamakoa Kalani Center for Hawaiian Studies. She joined us to talk about why the Limu survey is so important to the healing of the island, which the military used to bomb for training for some 50 years. The class is called Kia'i Kanaloa, and it's how do we support the communities and the people who are the ones on the ground trying to steward and protect our marine ocean resources. And so we worked with Protect Kohoolawe Ohana to figure out what their needs were on island and to look at their Iola Kanaloa, their management plan for the island. And one of that was to understand the marine resources. 
And so my students worked at Auntie Davy, and they came to understand that they wanted to do some limu surveys to understand how healthy the resources were on island. And through that collaboration, they wrote to just do two small huakais to Koho'olawe to bring the limu hui together with the Protect Koho'olawe Ohana Kua members, specifically the Ka'aya Kanaloa. That hui is, you know, dedicated to protecting the marine and understanding the marine resources on Koho'olawe. And we wanted to help them in, in their mission. And so they wrote this grant to, to bring all the hui's together to just try and understand the limu resources and if they're healthy and abundant or, you know, what's maybe preventing them from being abundant near Hakiawaba, near the home base of the PKO. And so what part of the island are we talking about with the survey? So Hakiawaba is the home base for the Protect Olave Ohana, and that's where they've been accessing for the last few decades. And that is the side that faces Maui. So it's sort of northeast, north kind of facing shores. And primarily we wanted to survey places that they access. They do gather limu when they're on island for protocol and for, for food. And they wanted to ensure that they weren't over-harvesting or how they understood, you know, what the resources health was like from where they were harvesting. So we were trying to survey areas that we could walk pretty much from base camp, but we also wanted to start surveying areas where they're expanding to. So they have an alaloa that's been really well developed where they can walk around, you know, many parts of the island now, especially for the makahiki ceremony. And so we were going to also visit some of those bays where they they do sit and, you know, where they hope to gather to feed themselves in the future. So some of the areas to the northwest side, like for the Lanai side. And so what type of limu are we dealing with in this survey? Oh, we're just trying to see everything that's present. Of course, we want to know about the limu that they gather. And they do gather, you know, usually limu kala is one of the very important species for protocol and ceremony. Limu kohu is something that everyone loves to enjoy and eat. But we really were just trying to understand the, a variety of limu that was abundant there. And if there are any kind of, you know, rare species or unique species, we looked at all the previous surveys that have been done on island over time by other people, and then also trying to see if all those species that were present in the past are present today. We also tried to see if there is invasive species, which we didn't see any of. So it seems like the, the limu resources, they have a, a huge variety of, of different limu species present. You know, the big focus for Ko'olawe is really healing after being used, you know, for target practice by the military. Uh, but w- what are the concerns about, you know, unexploded ordnance when you do go out there and check the reefs? Yeah, so we only do access areas that have been cleared, but yes, going underwater has not been cleared. So that is something we have to be very careful of. In most of the survey work that we've been doing, we really are just walking along the shoreline and looking at those exposed areas. And that's why it, it was done with a lot of kua present, so a lot of the koho'olawe present. It is going to be a big concern as we try to expand surveys. Anything that we do underwater, we have to be very careful that we're not touching the substrates and making sure everyone's aware of the concerns, for sure. And so you were unable to do a winter check just because of the, of the weather. What's the plan for 2023? When do you think you might be able to get back out there again? Part of the purpose of the grant was to create some methods and create a baseline so that when the PKO themselves, the KUAs, have their monthly access trips or when they do their different trips, that they're empowered to understand how to monitor the limu. And so right now, we're probably, since we missed the winter season, are going to be trying to go back in the spring. And then that will give us a replicate of what we saw last year. And so at least we'll be able to see how consistent some of these patterns are. Limu is such an amazing species where just because you see it one day and you don't see it the other, it doesn't mean there's something wrong, right? It has, it comes and goes, it's patchy, it has seasons, it shifts, and you just need to be present with limu to understand all that, to understand if it's abundant or not, or what might be keeping it from being abundant. So a lot of what we're doing is just trying to understand kind of the life cycle and just the ola of the limu itself and what we can expect for it. And so I hope that a lot of the products that were kind of come from this project is just giving communities and giving the PKO different methods and different resources to understand their limu. There's not really any baseline studies for limu abundance in the state. No one really monitors limu abundance. There aren't sites that have been monitored over years to see how they grow. It's such a kind of a cryptic species. Yeah, it lives in that Hina zone along the shoreline where it comes and goes and ebbs and flows. 
we hope that by going back in the spring, we can start setting up some permanent monitoring systems. But really, it's the conversations that occur and just people's focus and attention on Limu that we're looking for so that we know how important it is to support the rest of the health of the ecosystem and the rest of the marine species that depend on them. And this grant that you folks were able to get, how long does it go for? So we got a grant from NOAA's Marine Education and Training Grant. So that's where that education and training is trying to create some more Limu ID guides and Limu books, different resources for other communities to monitor their Limu. And it was only supposed to have been a one-year grant. (laughs) And so we've been very, very fortunate that they've allowed us to extend the grant this year. And right now we're hoping to finish up by the summer of 2023. So it would allow us to do that next spring one. And also for, I'm teaching the course again this coming spring and my students are gonna be tasked with creating a lot of outreach products and a lot of resources for communities, ID books and ID guides, Limu presses, all those things that we can continue to engage our communities with the love of Limu and that being you know, some of the main products of the, of the project. I tried to stress in the grant that the purpose wasn't to create a standardized monitoring method. The purpose was to have the conversations around how important our limu is to us and how do we understand its abundance and its health and the way it grows and what are the challenges that it's facing. And the only way you know that is by being present and having people who are, you know, really peely to a place like the the Kua members of the Protecto Olive Ohana, you know, they love this place. They've, They've been on this island consistently for decades. They have this ingrown knowledge about that place. And then connecting them with people who know their limu and just giving that space for those conversations to happen. So we're really grateful that the grant allowed us to have that space for these conversations to begin. It's really all about sharing that knowledge with the, with the communities across the state. Yeah, people love limu and we want people to love limu. If we love eating fish, we have to know how important our limu is. And just having those conversations so that people start understanding how everything is related and connected. (laughs) When the governor at the beginning of the year named this, you know, this year, 2022, the year of the Limu, I mean, what was the the feeling from the community about that? The fact that it was elevated? I love reading old stories about our ocean resources and I love listening to old kupuna talk about it. And every older kupuna talks about how much they love Limu and the smell of Limu and the taste of Limu. And we know about all the books of eating Limu. And I think just that recognition of how important Limu was to Hawaii and Auntie Izzy Abbott, she always declared that Hawaiians, you know, are the biggest lovers of Limu in the world. And we started to forget that. We started to think that poke was our favorite thing to eat. And by him declaring this the year of the Limu, it helps us go back to the pico, back to our source, and knowing what our ono is, and our ono is for Limu. And the ono for Limu you know, ensures that our marine fisheries are abundant and that our people are eating healthy food. We've been hearing from Noelani Ponibai, a faculty member at UH who is working on the Limu survey on Kaho'olawe. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we look at home sharing, one potential solution to our housing crisis, and perhaps another take on multi-generational living. Got questions or feedback? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find the Conversation podcast online or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 